Mariners Pod. Welcome back. Just in time for the weekend and what a weekend it should be. Gary Hill here. Thanks for being part of Mariners Pod as always. I appreciate it as always. It's great to have you here as we talk about... I'll start with the two games against the Rockies, the very brief two-game series, the off day yesterday. The Mariners are heading into a very tough but very exciting road trip starting in Chicago. We'll touch on that. We'll hear from Jake Fraley. Rick Riz had a chance to sit down with him. And Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City. Really fun conversation and some stories I think you'll enjoy. He told one about Satchel Page I've never heard before. At <laughs> it was just it was a typical Satchel Page story, amazing, and no one tells stories better than Bob Kendrick. He's just the best there is in telling stories right now in baseball. So that's going to come up in a few minutes as well. Let's dive into the two games against Colorado, the very brief two-game series. Of course, the Mariners coming off the sweep against Tampa Bay. Kind of a weird part of the schedule where they get the Tampa Bay sweep. They have a day off. Then Colorado comes in for two games. And in the first game, they picked up exactly where they left off. Chris Flexen, he has really had a nice first half for the Mariners, and he was excellent against Colorado. Here we go again, another one-two pitch, and a swing, and a miss for strike three, and Flexen wins the battle. He strikes out Joshua Fuentes for strikeout number five in the long, long at-bat, and that's it for the Rockies in the fifth. So Chris Flexen did it again. Shedlong Jr. did it again. Of course, after hitting the Grand Slam walk-off in the game before against Tampa, he would come through with a solo blast in the eighth inning to give the Mariners a 2-1 to lead, and it would be a 2-1 to win. Chris Flexen... Goes six and two-thirds, one run allowed, two walks, six strikeouts. You know, it's interesting. I look. I like to look at game score once in a while just as a comparative tool for starts. Now, there's lots of ways to evaluate starting pitchers, but I like this to just kind of look at when you're looking at a big list. Like If you put every Mariners start this year into a big pile and trying to sort them. I like to use game score to try and kind of sift things out a little bit. And game score, basically, you get points, plus points, and minus points for good things and bad things. For example, innings pitched and strikeouts, you get plus points for, and minus points for walks and earned runs and hits and homers and things like that. So simplistically, that's how it kind of breaks down. Now, what's interesting, if you would have asked me before I recently looked after the Chris Flexen start, I would have said, you say for sure had the most in the top 10. I used top 11 just because this Chris Flexen start happened to be the 11th best start on game store, uh, game score this year for the Mariners. So just using the top 11 because of this last start. But I would have said you say for sure. He's been marvelous. He's pitched so well. But it's actually Chris Flexen in the top 11. He has four of the best game scores this season. And it just kind of points out just how good he's been. And in a lot of ways, he's just kind of gone about it pretty quietly. Uh, now a 3.87 ERA and 13 starts, 74 innings thrown this year. And, you know, the FIP is along the lines of it's exactly along the lines it's 3.82 and his era 3.87 so there's not a lot of flukiness going on here this is just really solid pitching of course the start before that against minnesota scoreless through eight he's just seemingly gotten better and better as the season has gone on in fact 
you pull out that San Diego start where he went an inning and two-thirds, he gave up eight earned runs in that start. I mean, take that out, and he has really been dynamite. Those are some sparkling numbers. And I think it's pretty exciting what we've seen from you say, Marco returning and being more Marco-ish uh, with Flexen, and what we've seen from Logan Gilbert getting better and better. That's a solid group that they're uh, putting together right now, moving forward. And I'm anxious to see how it plays out, especially as we get to the All-Star break here coming up in the next couple of weeks. So why don't we, while well, we have a moment, hear from Chris Flexen after that start as he continues to roll. So... Mariners win game one. They lose game two, five to two. Another struggle for Justice Sheffield. The Mariners go seven and two on the homestand, which was excellent. The two losses, Sheffield starts, who struggled in both. He goes four and a third, four hits, three runs, three walks, five strikeouts, a couple of homers along the way. Fell behind a lot. I think eight first pitch strikes out of 20 in the ball game. And. It's been a struggle, no doubt about it. And the Mariners lose in game two of the series, five to two. Here's what Chef said after the ball game. Chef, I know your frustration level is high. I mean, I know you got family here and everybody watching. How, how difficult is that when you don't kind of go out and really perform the way you want? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, it sucks not to pitch well. And then it sucks even more when, you know, your family is here and, uh, you know, uh, just, just not, not, um, you know, not what you want. Uh, you know, definitely wanted to go out there and and get back on track and um, pitch well and and um, you know uh, build off that. But um, you know, only thing I can do now is just take the positives from today and um, and build off those and and just keep moving forward. Just keep pushing. What were those positives from today? Uh, I feel like I didn't really, uh, I didn't let up, um, you know, I feel like in, in that fourth inning, especially, you know, gave up the solo shot early, um, early in the inning. And then, you know, had two runners on with, uh, I think one out and then just grinding through it and, and being able to get out of that inning. Uh, I felt like that was huge. Um, you know, wish I would have taken that momentum into the fifth inning and, you know, I got a quick first out, but, you know, then again, put, put Tappy on base, which, uh, not ideal, and then a, a base hit ended my outing. So um, it's the little things. Uh, you know, baseball is a game of inches, and, um, you know, you can't can't let them get free bags, can't let them get a free 90. Um, so makes it makes it harder on, on us um, trying to get out of those innings. So, uh, but, yeah, definitely I guess the positive would be, um, you know, I feel like my secondary stuff was pretty good. Um, when I was ahead in the count, I was able to put guys away like I wanted to, but it's just the falling behind that, that killed me. I know that you've been working on a little bit of timing and some mechanics. What was the thing that you were hoping was going to come together today is on those timing and mechanics? Uh, I mean, I felt I felt pretty good with my timing. I felt, felt pretty good. Uh, um, I feel like I'm still rushing a little bit. Um, Putting a little bit of extra on it, right at right towards the end when my foot's landing, um, especially on the heater. Uh, you know, get that heater to go up and away um, when I'm trying to drive it in. Um, you know, it's like my body wants to get there, but my arms, you know, lagging behind. So um, it's just one of those things where I just gotta uh, continue to work work on in between the outings to where when I get out there to to end game action, it's just compete from then on. You don't think about mechanics. Um, so 
just got to keep working in between my outings. So when, when you were missing kind of arm side high and away, like a lot of those kind of out of the zone, that, that that's what you're saying is the timing. You're, you're off there on that timing. Yeah, yeah. Um, just not staying closed all the way through, um, you know, and especially if I'm, if I'm throwing a two seam, it's already going to move, you know, arm side. So uh, you got to be able to stay on those pitches as long as possible to get that true um, movement that you want. And, um, you know, when I'm flying open, that's when, you know, it's, it's um, you know, nowhere near where I want it to be. So, uh, like I said, just got to keep working. When we talked to you the last time, you said you'd been through tougher things than this in terms of, I know you said you went back to double A. Back then we talked about the command issues. Is this similar to back then, or do you think this is more fixable than what you had back then? Yeah, I think it's way more fixable back then. I think back then it was more mental than anything. Um, I feel good. I feel good mentally. Um, you know, I'm having fun every day. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. Um, it's baseball, though, you know. Uh, it's not always going to go the way I want it to go or the way that I think it should go. So, um, you know, just taking in taking in the consideration, the little things of, um, you know, being blessed to be here and, and um, being blessed to work myself out of these situations. Um, you know, I just got to keep that mindset. Um, like I said, I'm, mentally, I feel like I'm there. Um, I still feel like I'm in attack mode. I'm still going after guys. Uh, it's just little small, small adjustments that I need to make to, to where I feel like that if I do make them that, um, you know, I can turn this whole thing around. Really at that point, the Mariners playing with some health money. They end up seven and two on the homestand, which you would take each and every time. And now things get very, very interesting as they hit the road. This is going to be a really tough road trip. First, the Chicago White Sox, one of the best teams in baseball. Then they'll take on the Toronto Blue Jays after that in Buffalo, and they can smash the ball around all over the yard. So starting pitching, as I just alluded to a moment ago, has been really good for the Mariners, especially through this homestand. They're going to be tested. Uh, both by the White Sox and the Toronto Blue Jays. Then the Amps return home for the Rangers, Yankees, and Angels. So a two-team trip this time around. But, man, the pitching matchups are delicious for this White Sox series. And the first one is about as good as it gets when you uh, compare a couple of starters, a couple lefties going in game one. Yusei Kikuchi, who, of course, has been on a huge role for the Mariners. You look at his last nine starts, he's been so consistent. His last nine now, including his last start against Tampa Bay, an ERA at two and a half, 61 strikeouts and 57 innings. Opponents batting just 173 against him. He's been fantastic, and he's going to have to be. Carlos Rodon will get the ball for Chicago. He's been one of the best in baseball. There's just no other way to put it. A 1-8-3 ERA and 12 starts so far this year. Of course, as the no-hitter. 105 strikeouts in just over 73 innings. White Sox have been waiting and waiting on this for a while, and the lefty is bringing it this year. You look at the just pure stuff. It's such a unique matchup between Rodon and Yusei Kikuchi. A couple lefties that... You just don't see lefties that throw like this. Uh, of course, uh, the two hardest-throwing lefties, lefty starters in baseball, Rodon's lefty velo, to be precise, on average, 95.9. You say 95.6. We're going to see some really great stuff tonight between these two. It's pretty exciting. 5'10 first pitch. 
from Chicago. We'll take the air an hour before that for the pregame show. And then it just keeps getting better. Logan Gilbert will take the ball on Saturday, 11-10 first pitch. Lance Lynn, who's been awesome for Chicago, will go in game two. Marco in game three on Sunday, 11-10 as well. Dallas Keuchel will go for Chicago. Now the White Sox have survived some pretty major injuries offensively this year. And their offense has taken a hit. Their offense not as strong as you would expect it to be, especially at full health, but they have made up for it with their pitching. Their pitching has been outstanding so far this year. The best ERA in the American League, 3.36, nearly the best walk rate in baseball and the best strikeout rate in baseball. They're fanning nearly 11 per nine, which is a pretty incredible mark. And their offense is still good. WRC plus on the season is 106. That's third best in the American League. So still good. But they are missing some giant pieces in the middle of that order. So we'll see how this series plays out. It's exciting what happened on the homestand. Mariners will certainly be tested on the road in these six games. But, man, it's just the pitching matchups are so fun for these three games coming up in Chicago. Hopefully uh, you have a chance to join us here. And we will talk all about it over the weekend. In the meantime, we will hand things over to Rick Riz with Jake Fraley as they start with that pretty amazing catch a couple weeks ago in Detroit. Jake, on the last road trip in Detroit, I saw one of the best catches I've seen in a long, long time, and I had a chance to watch number 24 out there in center field here. How in the world did you scale that wall in left field and the ball hit by Paredes, made a super catch, and turn it into a double play? What was it like making that play? Um, I mean, it's exactly the way you said it. Uh, I mean, it, you, you understand as a baseball player, and granted, I know I'm, I'm a young still, um, there's certain aspects in the game that, like, you understand, you know, the opportunities that you get, right? Um, and in that specific situation, that's not an opportunity that comes along a lot, right? So you have a play um, in the outfield that's hit like that, but it's also hit not long enough to where it's, you know, completely over the fence, but you still have a chance. Yeah. Um, and then you put in the factor of it being the ninth inning, um, yeah. going to be a walk-off. There's two out – or one out, sorry. Um so, like, the opportunity in itself is something that you don't always get. It's very, very rare. Um, and, I mean, other than making the catch, I mean, that's – I can't really explain much about it. I mean, you, you see the ball hit. We're, I, I said it after the game that day. Uh, we were playing no doubles, so obviously that helps. So being ahead of the curve, you know, our coaching staff, um, understanding the situation. So already being back obviously makes it a little bit easier because you're already back there. So it's not as much of a long run that you got to go straight back because yeah. um, he hit it right at me. So I had to go straight back. There wasn't any going left or right. I had to go straight back. Um, that's a very tough play. Um, so the fact that we were playing no doubles makes it a little bit easier. Um, and then other than that, it's really just getting back to the fence, knowing where it is. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to time it just right and it stayed in the glove. Um, and then as far as making the throw, I mean, you're you're always you're taught as the outfield, well, really anybody, infield, outfield, catcher, pitcher as well, um, just understanding, you know, how many outs are the situation where the runners are and, and kind of playing the game ahead, yeah. right? So for me, it was just, I mean, same thing that we all do out there, you know, just playing the game ahead and understanding the situation that if the ball gets hit to me and this happens or this happens, then I'm going to go here with the ball or here with the ball. So really just kind of like muscle memory I, I realized the ball was still in my glove once I came down and I just came up and knew exactly where I wanted to go with it because I had already replayed it like you know by that time three four or five times already yeah what was so outstanding what you just mentioned is that you know your awareness of the situation as soon as your feet hit the warning track you go 
I got to get that ball in because I got a shot for the double play because Haas was way down the line at second base. That that was incredible. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why you do it. That's why you, you're playing ahead um, and you're, you're ready for whatever situation comes your way. One of the best plays of the season. Jake, let's talk a little bit about your offense. You've been doing a great job since you returned from Tacoma. What's been the biggest difference uh, the second time around? You're getting on base like crazy. Yeah, uh, we had uh, we had some some little things that um, well not little things but pretty big things that I worked on with Laker and JD in the off season, uh, and we really felt like we had a good idea, a good foundation as far going into spring training, and uh, off to a little bit of a slow start in spring training, and then was able to really start feeling it kind of midway through and into the back half, and really got you know my feet running and feeling really well. And then once the season came around, obviously only played five games, ended up tearing the hamstring. Um, but during that time of rehabbing, um, I was still working with Laker and JD, and, and there were still a couple things that we still felt like we had kind of like the pieces and we were trying to kind of link them together um, from the upper half, really. And, I mean, we were I was watching video. I was relaying things back and forth off of them. And, you know, we felt like we had a pretty good plan as far as what we kind of wanted to do to kind of, kind of form that piece together from the foundation up. Um, and we feel like we found it, kind of like that last piece. And then when I went out on my rehab assignment was the first time I was able to kind of, you know, put it into play and kind of see, you know, what we were thinking, if it was right. Um, and right off you know, right off the bat felt extremely good. I was able to get a couple of really good hits, really big hits down yeah. there and feeling good with the rhythm and everything that, you know, goes along with the mechanics of the swing and just kind of rolled back over in here once I came back from the rehab assignment. What was that last missing piece? Um, just the, uh, the upper half. So in the offseason, it was more like the foundation, which is the legs and kind of from the ground up, which is where the swing starts. Um, and then the next piece was really the upper half. So it was kind of like my rhythm where I was kind of presetting my hands. Um, and that was kind of where I'm starting is, is, is allowing me to kind of get into the same kind of cock position uh, with my hands uh, in order to kind of get off my A swing every time I want. Um, so whenever I get that pitch that I want to swing at, I'm able to get off that same swing every single time, um, which is huge because obviously it's consistency in this game. First thing you want to do when you get the boxes hit, obviously, but man, a lot of walks, which is outstanding. Uh, where are all the walks coming from? Uh, I mean, I've always been a very patient hitter. Um, maybe not as patient as <laughs> now, but I mean, I feel like as you grow up, you know, and as you go through your career, you kind of obviously adjust and adapt. I mean, that's the biggest thing about getting to the big leagues. Um, yeah. And so for me, I've always prided myself in kind of having that good eye at the plate and making good swing decisions. And I think, you know, once I came over here uh, after being traded over here, a big thing that and I've said this many times, a big thing that the Mariners uh, preach is controlling the zone. Um, So kind of taking that along with me being always, you know, priding myself in in being like that at the plate. um, And what I just said just now is just that kind of adjustment and and just adapting, right, to the game and the way that it's flowing. Um, And it's just kind of, you know, it's uh, same thing with the swing. It's kind of all the puzzle pieces coming together. And uh, I'm just trying to be as consistent as another can with it. Real quick, uh, what was it like to get that first uh, home run of the big leagues and then the grand slam? Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, It's obviously a a big monkey off my back. this is kind of like the first time I'm able to kind of get my feet running with, uh, you know, staying consistently out here and healthy. Um, so for me, it was that's the biggest key um, is that, you know, my body's been able to stay healthy and the training staff has been phenomenal um, with allowing me to kind of make sure that I'm doing everything I can to stay out here on the field. Because, um, I mean, injuries are part of the game. It's part of sports. Uh, it's all across sports and it's just something that you can't really control. It just, you know, it's the body. <laughs> it, it just does what it does sometimes. And um, so for me being able to stay healthy you know i'm kind of allowing my feet to kind of like really settle in and now it's time for one of the all-time best bob kendrick 
Well, Bob, it is so great to see you. Every year, the Mariners go to Kansas City. We, of course, visit your wonderful museum. You so graciously have hosted us so many times. It is fantastic. We get to return the favor. Welcome to Seattle. It's great to have you here. I'll tell you what, it is great to be back. It's been a while since I've been out here to the Emerald City, but it sure feels good to be back. And, you know, the pageantry of this day with it being Juneteenth on top of the fact that the club is also having its salute to the Negro Leagues makes it even more meaningful to be back here in Seattle. I look at this weekend, the Mariners, of course, wearing the Steelheads jersey in honor of the Negro Leagues here. And I think about Major League Baseball finally proclaiming the Negro Leagues as a major league. I can go to baseball reference right now and see it on the front page. (laughs) Negro Leagues are the major leagues. You have been such a wonderful ambassador for the museum, for the Negro Leagues, for baseball. What are your emotions as you see not only the legacy living on, but thriving? Yeah, no, a tremendous pride. Uh, I reflect, obviously, and naturally to my dear friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, who was the architect of building a Negro Leagues baseball museum and a legendary Negro Leaguer in his own right. And every time we hit one of these milestone moments like that, I reflect to him uh, because I know how proud he would be. But I think we carry that same level of pride at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and the Negro Leagues family, by and large, very proud of what we're seeing, this level of recognition, the level of engagement around the Negro Leagues and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is at an all-time high. And so... We are so honored to be part of what led us to that epic decision in December when Major League Baseball announced what we've known all along is that the Negro Leagues were a major league. In my house, I have a picture of Satchel Paige that I look at every single day. And if I had one baseball wish, it'd be to go back in time and just on a sunny afternoon, just one time, (laughs) watch Satchel Paige deal. If I could wave a magic wand and you could go back in time, who is the one player that you would love to watch? I'll tell you what, you can't go wrong wanting to see Satchel. And and probably had he not passed away when he did, you might have gotten a chance because (laughs) he was going to pitch forever. And and so, but Satchel certainly at the top of that list. But you want to see Josh Gibson swing that big bat. You know, I was holding court down with the guys over at batting practice, uh, and we were all gathered around telling telling some stories. Some of them were true, but, you know, that's all right. We'll let them figure out which ones were. But, you know, you, you, you wonder what it would have been like to see Gibson swing that big bat of his, 40-ounce, 41-inch bat. And as the late, great Buck O'Neill says, he only heard this distinct crack of the bat three times in his almost seven decades in the game of baseball. The first time he heard it, it was coming off of the bat of Babe Ruth. He just said it made a different noise coming off his bat. Well, the second time he hears it, he, it was off the bat of Josh Gibson. And the third time, this one surprises people, Bo Jackson, the great Bo Jackson, just said the ball made a different sound coming off the crack of their bat. And so it must have been special to see this dynamic catcher who might have been the most prolific hitter this game has ever seen because lost inside the prodigious power, almost mythical-like power, was a guy who was a not a good hitter, 
but a great hitter because we're talking about a lifetime batting average of 354 and in head-to-head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, hit over 420. And he's doing this as a catcher. He dominated the game on both sides as a catcher. You know, if there's anything such as a 5-2 catcher, it was Josh Gibson because he could steal your bases as well. You know, and, and so it would have been special to see him, to see Satchel, to see Cool Papa circle the bases. You know, you couldn't go wrong with any of those. You mentioned Josh Gibson. We were in Pittsburgh a couple of years ago, and Josh Gibson is buried at a cemetery mm-hmm. not too far from the ballpark, uh-huh. just a couple of miles. And I ran over there on just a sunny, random weekday afternoon, and his gravesite was unmarked for the longest time. It's now marked. And as I stood there, I thought about Josh Gibson and how symbolic he is, where he is clearly one of the greatest players that has ever played this game and had he been allowed to play in the major leagues we'd be talking about him as perhaps the greatest player who's ever played this game i i think there's a tremendous possibility but you know what you could say the same thing about martin dehigo the great cuban ball player who i love telling that story because he's not a household name you know when i mention the names josh gibson satchel page cool papa bell most fans have at least heard those names. Now, they may not know how fully great they were, mm-hmm. but you've probably heard those names somewhere in conversation. But when I mention a name like Martin De Higo from Cuba, nicknamed El Maestro, the master, because he could do it all, fellas. He played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. He holds the distinction of being the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. So he's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Or if I mention a name like Oscar Charleston, whom the late great Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation, the greatest baseball player he ever saw. Now, he thought Willie Mays to be the greatest major league player that he ever saw. And most people concur. Because Willie Mays could beat you everywhere in which you could be beaten. He could beat you with his bat, with his arm, with his legs, with his glove. And, of course, Mays' illustrious career began in the Negro Leagues as a 17-year-old center fielder for the Birmingham Black Barons. But Buck always believed the greatest baseball player he ever saw was Oscar Charleston. Oscar Charleston was the consummate 5-2 guy. Hit for power, hit for average, could field, could run, could throw. In 1921, he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average in the same season. You know, and so to think that baseball fans missed seeing this caliber of talent play. As I described them, some of the greatest athletes to ever play this game because they could have played anything. Yeah, they could have played any sport. And they were all, for the most part, multiple sports stars, but baseball was really the only sport that you could make a living in. And so they gravitated to the game of baseball. When I tell people, when they come into the Negro Leagues Museum, that Jackie Robinson's weakest sport was baseball. It's eye-opening. Yeah, he's a Hall of Famer, and it was his weakest sport. He was a much better basketball, football, track athlete, some say an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that Jackie Robinson could not do. And so when I mentioned that there were players in the Negro Leagues who were better than Jackie Robinson, it is not to disparage Jackie Robinson. It speaks to the immense talent that was there in the Negro Leagues. 
You mentioned Jackie, and it's my favorite day of the year when we celebrate Jackie Robinson. It is such a special day for everything he did for the game, but for the country as well. I know Buck O'Neill always talks about it as Jackie being the starting point for the modern civil rights movement. At the same time, I always feel like there is a guy that went through everything that Jackie did that does not get the same recognition that Jackie does, and that's Larry Larry Doby. Doby. Tell me about Larry Doby. Yeah, I, I have a new podcast that I do with my friends over at Sirius XM Radio called Black Diamonds. And so we just finished season one. Uh, season two will begin after the All-Star break. And the f- season finale is on Larry Doby, or as I like to say, the second guy to walk on the moon. He's our Buzz Aldrin. Yeah, and Larry Doby, as you mentioned, went through just as much some may argue even more than Jackie because Jackie was playing in Brooklyn. And Brooklyn was a major urban center. Yeah, there were black folks in Cleveland, but they didn't have the same media presence following Larry Doby as you had following Jackie. And Larry Doby was 23 years old, thrown into a powder keg of racism. And yet he handled it with the same grace, class, and dignity that Jackie did. And Larry Doby never played a day in the minor leagues. He went straight from Effa Manley's Newark Eagles over to Cleveland. The very next year, he and Satchel Paige would help the Cleveland Indians win the 1948 Negro League World Series. And my Cleveland Indian fans get tired of hearing me say this. It was the last time Cleveland won the World Series with with Larry Doby and, and Satchel Paige. And Satchel gets called up. That year, in July of that season in 1948, he was supposed to be 42 years old. If you believe he was born in 1906, <laughs> which I absolutely do not believe, and he goes 6-1 and one that year and helps Cleveland come from behind to win the pennant. They don't win the pennant had it not been for Satchel, and then they go on to win the 48 World Series where Larry Doby was really the star of that 48 team and that 48 World Series, and he comes out of the Negro Leagues. And again, there were five guys who go up in 1947. Jackie, of course, we know his story intimately. And as you mentioned, Larry Doby, but also Hank Thompson, mm-hmm. Willard Brown, and Dan Bankhead. They all go up in 1947, and they're the answers to a trivia question. But that is how we are in our society. We always remember the first we rarely ever remember the second. And if you're number 16, you can pretty much forget it because it took 12 years for Major League Baseball to finally integrate, fully integrate, with Boston being the last to sign Elijah Pumsey Green in 1959, 12 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier. And one of our new exhibitions is called Barrier Breakers. And we chronicle all of those trailblazers who broke their respective Major League teams' color barriers. In this conversation, you've mentioned Buck O'Neill a couple of times. Yes. What do we have to do to get Buck O'Neill into the (laughs) Hall of Fame? Man, I'm hoping it happens this year. Uh, As I understand it, that he will be on the Golden Eras Committee Mm. ballot which they will meet in December, I believe, at baseball winter meetings. And so he is up for possible induction into the Hall of Fame. Naturally, we hope it happens. I thought it was going to happen in 2006 when he missed by one vote. And so for me, I've got to kind of temper my expectations. I have to prepare myself both 
emotionally and mentally for what could happen, uh, the possibility that it might not happen, but I also have to think about it in terms that it will happen mm -hmm. because if it does, we get to plan a Buckle Neal Hall of Fame celebration in 2022, and it would still be meaningful. Obviously, it won't be quite the same for me because had he gotten in in 2006, he was still with us physically at that time. He's still with us in a spiritual fashion. I tell people all the time, there's not a single day that goes by that I don't think about Buck O'Neill. And, man, I talk to Buck every single day. Now, he doesn't always talk back to me, but I talk to Buck every single day. And, honestly, I feel like he's been guiding my footsteps. Mm. You know, I feel like he is watching over me, and it is helping us keep his museum healthy and strong. And But, yes, are we all rooting for him to get in the Hall of Fame? We absolutely are. But it's more than just rooting for him. It is deserved. Yeah, we're talking about a guy who had a seven-decade-long career in this game who impacted it on so many levels. You would be hard-pressed to find anyone who did more for the game of baseball than Buck O'Neill. And so he has earned this opportunity, and I certainly hope that it happens. And for all of his fans who have been so vigilant, since for over 15 years now because it's been almost 15 years since we lost buck and he died the year that he didn't get in later in october after not getting in in february of 2006 and, and they have been vigilant about his deserving to be in the hall of fame and they've kept beating that drum over that entire period of time so it'd be hard not to be happy for his fans you know, because they, I think, would feel a level of vindication mm -hmm. if this were to happen. Finally, do you have a favorite Satchel Page story? <laughs> I just shared a few with uh, some of the guys from the Mariners as we were standing around the batting cage. And, and one of my favorite stories, and I heard this originally from the legendary Dodger broadcaster, Vin Scully. And then I had it verified with Whitey Herzog here recently when uh, Whitey was in Kansas City hanging out with George Brett. And I'm at the ballpark, and they say, well, Whitey's back there in the suite with George Brett. You want to go back and see him? So I go back, and I ask him about this story, and I say, is it true? He says, it's absolutely true. Well, Satchel, this was the year 1956, and Satchel was supposedly 50 years old if you believe that he was born in 1906, which I absolutely do not believe. But for the sake of this story, we'll say that Satchel was 50 years old. He is now pitching in AAA baseball for the Miami Marlins. Bill Veck had ownership stake in the Marlins, so he had brought the old man back to pitch for the Marlins, but he's pitching highly effectively for the Marlins. And so they're in Rochester, New York, and the Rochester team had a knot hole in the outfield wall. And so they had a promotion that said if any batter could hit the ball on the fly through the knot hole, you could win $10,000. Well, it was virtually impossible. They weren't trying to get that money away. And so Whitey says he's out in the outfield. He's a young outfielder for the Marlins at this time. Says he's out in the outfield jogging, and he took some baseballs with him just to see if the ball would actually fit in the hole. Well, that's just enough circumference to get that ball through the hole. He goes back and gets his, his ageless teammate, Satchel Page. He says, Satchel, 
you always bragging about how great your control is and how you can throw a baseball over a chewing gum wrapper. Honest God's truth. The catcher would sit the chewing gum wrapper down on home plate, and wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. And as Satchel would say, he worked both corners of that chewing gum wrapper. And, and he said, you always bragging about how great your control is and how you can throw the baseball over the chewing gum wrapper. Well, I bet you a bottle of old granddad bourbon that you can't throw that baseball through that knot hole. Well, now, Satchel had a nickname for everybody. His nickname for Herzog was Wild Child. He says, Wild Child, where the ball fit. Herzog shows him it's just enough circumference to squeeze that ball through the hole. He says, Wild Child, I'll take that bet. And so Herzog says he steps off 60 feet 6 inches puts down the pitching rubber, he's going to give the old man three tries to throw that ball through the knot hole. He says Satchel takes the baseball like a hunter is looking through the telescope of his rifle, and he measures. And he says the first pitch goes in the hole but spins back out. And and so Herzog is in freaking disbelief. But he's saying to himself, well, I know he can't get any closer than that. And the very next pitch, right through the hole. He says, Satchel reaches down, picks up the bottle of bourbon and says, Wild child, I'll take that. And saunders on off into the sunset. Yeah, I tell my guests all the time, there will never, ever, ever be another Leroy Satchel Page. That's the greatest. Bob, thank you so much. It's so great to see you. Man, it's great to be back. Thank you guys for having me.